Yeah, this is the Italian American podcast. Our audience loves the fact that we eat, drink, yell at each other. So, in a normal podcast, <laughs> setting, something it's like let people huge, talk. We got a huge uptick for cracking walnuts. We didn't, it wasn't planned. It wasn't a contrived. No, it, it was like we were at her house eating cracking um, walnuts. He's flipping out that we're making prosciutto. Yes, absolutely. All right, I'll tell you if it's thin enough. You can blame Whole Foods. Believe it or not, we get letters. The prosciutto is excellent. Oh, good. That makes me happy. You're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly you get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Power Hour. And we have a very, very special day for you today. We are here in the great city of New York, my hometown. The Power Hour crew is loaded to the gills. I'm with Pat, Rosella, Dolores, and we have an incredibly special guest with us here today. He is the 107th mayor of the city of New York, former United States Associate Attorney General, former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, lawyer to President Trump, a man who Oprah Winfrey herself described as America's mayor, and he sure is to all of us here, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Mayor, it's phenomenal to have you with us today. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And Thank you for feeding me. Yeah, <laughs> we're famous for our show because people eat live, uh, make noise, we homemade wine. I'm not used wine. to this in, in Washington. <laughs> no. When the press interviews me, they throw things at me, but not food. We're you're amongst your own tribe today, Mary. Ah, thank God. Yeah. This is the place to be if you're Italian. Well, the, the idea of having you here, first of all, when I asked you about this and we started talking about this, we don't always know if somebody's going to relate enough to their Italian-American heritage to even come on and do this show. I get the sense from our brief conversations, this is a big part of who you are. All of them. I mean, I'm 100%. <laughs> we're in the era of, you know, we're in the era of, my children are half Italian and one-eighth everything else. <laughs> so I tell them, with their name being Giuliani, and the fact that they're half Italian and then no better than one-eighth anything else, they're Italian. But, so it's the era in which, you know, there are so many Italian, Irish, Italian, French, Italian, whatever, German. I'm all Italian. Mother and father, Italian, grandparents from Italy, one from around Florence, the other from around Naples. And um, I just love, I love my heritage, everything about it. It's important that those of us that have accomplished still relate and understand that this is a community that still exists. 25 million people in this country are Italian-American. And, you know, the idea that you can, you can do these kind of things not only just to set an example and be out there for the community, but really to, to help and advocate for one another. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of a lost sentiment these days. But right. I think it's really important, you know, the idea that being aware where there are other Italians needing success or pursuing success, that you can help in that course, you know. I think the culture also has something to give. You know, if, if you lose it, maybe you lose some of it. Like, tremendous uh, reliance on family, how important families are. 
even when they fight and go crazy and they don't talk to each other for two years and they get back together. Um, They're very much a part of your life and how much, when things get rough, then families even that are having problems get together. I'm sure other cultures have that too, but Italians have it like in dramatic abundance. Yes. Right? It's like everything about Italians is dramatic. That's true, yes. And that's another wonderful part, kind of relaxing a little about life. I remember the first time I went to Rome, first time I was in Italy. I walked, rushed in, it was a Sunday afternoon, it was middle of the summer and it was probably 100 degrees. Got to this little hotel, had some bags, went upstairs, and immediately I said to the porter, the guy who helped me with the bags, I said, tonight I want to go see Aida. I don't have dinner in a special restaurant now, right now, right now. I want to have dinner in a special restaurant right now, right now. And, now, and then I want to go see Aida at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock. So I want to, have, want to go to a place where I can get finished with dinner on time so I can go see Aida in the bands of Caracalla because I have to go see her. He looked at me and said, calm down. <laughs> You're an American. You're from New York. Calm down. We don't do it here. <laughs> Plenty of time for dinner. Coffee moves that fast yeah. here. Plenty of time for dinner. Yeah. If you don't finish dinner before the opera, you can finish dinner. <laughs> no, so take a nap. <laughs> not to mention the opera's not starting on time. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, not concerned about the formality yeah. of time. But then you understand that, you know, the, cult, the culture has something to teach and right. to give. And so I was Italian-American, grew up in an Italian family, but I had become American in the sense that everything has to be done now. we got to do it really quickly and... Uh, you better be on time, and and it was just a wonderful experience. We we, we forget how American we've become as a people until we go to Italy, and if you go to Italy for the first time, you know it's familiar, and it's it's almost like living in an alternate universe because the the sounds and the smells and the cadences are all very familiar to and the faces. Yeah, and people. Look first time I was in Italy, they look at my like, oh my god, they have all these people look at my like my family. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. yeah, I'm in New York. Everybody looks different, but in God, oh my, look at my uncle. Oh, do you look at my cousin? It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But then you actually live there for a while, and you're like, oh, these people are not worried about the time, or, you know, <laughs> the air conditioning doesn't work, and they won't give you ice in your drink, even though it's 90 degrees. You know, it's, it's just a now, it can be frustrating, too, oh, because then, I, much later on, I went back, when I was U.S. attorney, to negotiate with the Italian government to get the number two guy in the mafia. He was from Sicily. He was arrested in Spain. So we had contending requests for extradition. America wanted him. Italy wanted him. So I went there to negotiate with the Italian government, with Louis Free, who later became the head Another of the FBI, Italian who was one of my assistant U.S. Yeah. attorneys, and then several other people, including Senator DeMana. And we were supposed to negotiate for two days. It was right near the Fourth of July holiday. We got back 10 days later. <laughs> That's well, first of, all, first of all, there was some holiday. Ten we got there like on June 30th. We're going to come back on July 2nd. June 30th, July 1st. July 2nd, there was some holiday that I don't know what it was. Some strike. <laughs> but I was told, we were supposed to negotiate. We, they said, we'll stay over one more day. We're going to negotiate tomorrow. I said, yeah, fine, we'll stay over one more day and negotiate tomorrow. I get a call in the way. We're not negotiating today. Why? They forgot it's a holiday today. <laughs> I said, okay, well, well, then the third. We got to do it on the third. It's on the third. We're halfway through. They want to renegotiate everything. Then they want to take time off for lunch. We'd have two-hour lunches oh in the middle gosh. of the negotiation, four-hour dinners. Uh, then we take a little rest. Oh, we got to rest now. <laughs> yes, yes, you can't take advantage. So of now we're getting to the end of the we're getting to the end of the third. And I, I wanted to get back for the fourth of July, and they said no, no, no. And I said, well, well, then let's negotiate tomorrow. They said you can't negotiate on your holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Pat and I went to went to Sicily one time to do a contract for NIAC. Oh, you were with me, Carl was with 
followed with it. I went to Italy one time to do a contract in Nyack with uh, one of our team members there. And it was like a four-day trip we had planned. We were going to leave Palermo after day one, sign the contract. And every day, we'd go to the same spot and wait for the contract signing. And every day, we'd have another reason why the there contract go. couldn't be done. And, and we left without signing the contract. We, we just you know, couldn't. But you ate really well. We ate fantastic. They showed us everywhere. We can't sign today. We'll take you here. And... But that's just how they're they're very, good at, they're very good at compensating yeah. the downtime. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Something that should take like two hours in America takes a week in Italy. Oh, like oh. For, for a work trip, it's just, uh, you have to tack on the Italian time. You need buffer time for, yeah. for doing business in Italy. But if you, so if you get it, it's like a nice week. It's a great week. It's fantastic. You can't beat that. And then, then you can tell your boss, well, I had, I had to be there. Blame <laughs> <laughs> the Italians. So. Uh, it happens in a lot of countries, though, outside of America. So Italy is it. Well, I'm negotiating with a government now for a security contract, and the poor people have been there for two and a half weeks. Wow. And it's going to get signed the next day. That's amazing. And the next day, either there's a holiday, a lot of holidays in these places, <laughs> and then or then there's they renegotiate what they negotiated before. That's very And then you negotiate it back, and they put it back, and then they find something else to renegotiate. It's almost as if they want to keep you there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Yeah, charm you. The food's probably not as good as Italy in these other places. That's true. So. If you're going to be in Italy, in Italy, Mike, no, no better place. So you grew up in, in Brooklyn, in East Flatbush. It was an Italian neighborhood at that point? Uh, well, I, I was born in Brooklyn. I lived seven years in Brooklyn, seven years in Garden City South, and seven years in North Belmore. So I, my first seven years was in Brooklyn. It was in Flatbush, right near Kings County Hospital, and one mile from Evansville. Wow. And it was, it was previously an Irish neighborhood, because we had an Irish football field two blocks down from it. I even remember the name of it, Bennett Field. Um, but it had turned, so it still had a certain number of Irish people still there, but they had moved out and had become an Italian neighborhood. So maybe it was 60% Italian and maybe 10, 20% Irish and 10, 20% Jewish. And then when I moved to Garden City, same thing. It was, it was Italian, Jewish, Irish. And then I went to Catholic school, so the kids I went to school with were all Italian and Irish and then a few other things, German, Polish, Catholics. So I grew up not knowing what I, I, mean, I rooted for Notre Dame because wow. the nuns forced me to root for Notre Dame. <laughs> the, the, it was the, like the, the same the, reason you say the Our Father. You root for Notre Dame. Yeah. For Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah. I had a nun. Did a great job of spreading. The yeah, I had a nun. I, you know, people, people said, "Why do you, you didn't go to Notre Dame? Why do you root for Notre Dame?" I said, "I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why." So that nun, she, she was going to hit me if I didn't. I I uh, <laughs> I read that you considered priesthood. I didn't consider. I almost entered twice. When I graduated from high school, in my high school yearbook, I have little things written saying, good luck in the seminary. Um, I hope you'll give me confession one day <laughs> from my crazy high school classmates. <laughs> so I graduated, I guess, in June. Right? So then I took a month off. I probably had a job, and then I was going to enter the seminary in September. So I took about three weeks off, and that's when I decided I couldn't go into the priesthood right away. Because I used to go to Jones Beach. <laughs> That's a good place. So you can imagine what happened. Vocation, you can imagine yeah. what happened. I think it was the era when they were just beginning. I think it was when, you know, they were singing Yellow Polka Dot <laughs> That'll change your that mind. Song. That's what an Italian would say. Like after, the summer, like after the summer, you know? So then I went to see the priest who was the head of the seminary. It was the Montfort Fathers Seminary. I was going to be a missionary priest. I was going to work in Africa or in, or in St. Haiti. St. Louis de Montfort. St. Louis de Montfort. Was that your parish? No, it was not. My parish was just regular secular priest, but somehow there was a priest in my parish who was particularly dedicated to the Virgin Mary, so he was part of their society. Because Montfort had 
characters include. Mm, sure did. And they had and Rocky Point, New York. Yes, they had the strong <laughs> Our Lady of the Yeah, not my, and my eventually. publications you got? They had a strong presence there. And my and my grandmother had a summer house there. That's my grandmother. My grandmother's so, family, my, my nonna Carmella, her family went to Rocky Point every summer. Well, my, my grandmother had a house right on the water that almost slipped into the, into the Long Island Sound because it was so hanging over the cliff. And that ch- the, the, the Montford Father's church was right in town. Beautiful, beautiful church with a great grotto. Uh, it was through a priest, though, that I got involved with them. So then I went to see the head of the seminary, and I told him my problem. And he said, well, you should take, you know, take the, go to college, spend two years, and then come back and see what you think. So I went to Manhattan College. I had not applied to college. I had to do it all in July. And then after two years in college, I once again thought about becoming a priest, and my friend Alan Placker and I... Monsignor. Monsignor Placker, right? I mean, now you tell the end of the story, because he did it eventually. <laughs> we were going to enter... We were going to leave college and go to the diocesan seminary in Huntington. And again, I chickened out, and he chickened out. And then eventually I decided about then that it was, I knew I couldn't be a priest. And somehow I figured out to go to law school. Wow. And loved it. And Alan took a year off after college taught in a Catholic school, and then one day he said to me, I'm going to go in the seminary, and I laughed at him. I said, twice we had backed out. You're not going to the seminary. <laughs> and I bet him $100 that he wouldn't get, go in the seminary and make it for a year. So now I owe him about $10,000. He's, he's a Monsignor now. He's been a priest for 50 years. Wow, so. that's amazing. But I very much wanted to be a priest, so that consumed a lot of my my teenage years. Right, I was going to say, because you were preparing for that, so mm-hmm. that was where your, your mentality would have been. So I still have a great love of religion, theology, religion. I mean, I studied in college, because in college, all through college, I thought maybe I would still go into the seminary, so I took four or five years of theology wow. and Latin. You would, one of the greatest conversationalists around theology. Oh, we have a wonderful conversation. That is an absolute... I'm not a theologian. No, no, but... I'm more of a Catholic... Catholic I know the culture. Yeah, it's amazing. And you know the ceremony? You you love the liturgy? I love the old man. I love the liturgy. I love the colors. I'm a a great opera lover. I became an opera lover when I was 13. And I'm absolutely convinced I'm an opera lover because of high mass. Were you an opera lover? I was an opera lover. Can you still do the responses? Uh, I remember the pre intro we bought our day, a day I can do some of them. Next time we have a high mass, we'll invite you to join. And I have a Latin missile. In fact, I bought a really beautiful one about two years ago, so I could put it on display. And it was fun reading through it again because a lot of it I've forgotten. But once you read it, you can. Once you get Pat you can just, on this, we're gonna. I got a beautiful. I got a beautiful <laughs> missile. That's like everything about it is stunning. It's our patrimony of our civilization. Oh, the high mass. Absolutely. Well, yeah. You think about it. The high mass is the reason why we have opera. So the first composers, you weren't allowed to do secular music. Secular music was considered sinful. So music was written for God. Yeah. And there were even orchestras. That's why a lot of it is a cappella. And then they introduced instruments, still religious music. Even in the Protestant churches, like Bach wrote virtually all religious music. And all of a sudden, somebody got the great idea, Monteverdi, maybe the, maybe the first great one, got the, uh, the idea of, we could do like secular things here. And the first operas were all these very, very grandiose, like uh, myths from Greek mythology, Roman mythology, kind of like religious, but now secular. Mm-hmm. And that's how the that's how opera emerged. The, the, the opera sacra. The, the one thing about Southern Italian culture that's been forgotten was the sacred operas that were done around saints these days. Mm-hmm. You were saying, and they were written, they were performed. You can smell the Greek. You can smell the Greek tragedies that are yeah. still there. 
and the, the makiva, the, the props that would, they would use like for the assumption to have Mary taken up into the clouds or you know, all these mechanisms. Mechanisms that they yeah, mechanisms that, that they use to create opera, to create sacred opera. It's all born out of that. And you know it's so much I don't know, I guess that because so much of it is forgotten now. On my phone, I have probably a thousand, no, maybe five hundred operas, concerts, symphonies. You done masses, San Carlo Masses. Yeah, I have a great story about San Carlo. Do you really? I got a great story because it was a Saturday. I was there on my first time in Italy. It was, I remember it was 1970, and I had just gotten married. It was, you know, I was married a year, and uh, my wife and I went to Italy, and I knew where my grandmother was born in Avellino, a town called Gesualdo. Well, at least I knew it. I didn't know where it was. This was in the era before, you know, waves. And, yeah. and well, I wish I had, had it. Yeah. And I had, we had rented a car. I drove in Rome. I drove all the way from Rome down to Sorrento. Stayed in Sorrento and then tr tried to drive one day on a Saturday when I was going to go to the opera in San Carlo at 8 o'clock at night. So I drove into Avellino. I got completely lost. And I now had only a couple hours because I needed at least one hour to get back to, the, to, to Naples. Maybe more. I've forgotten. So I went to the local police station in Avellino, which is the center of Avellino. So I asked the police for directions in my halting Italian, and my wife knew a little Italian, and they began fighting with each other. The cops began <laughs> fighting with each other as to how the best way to get the chest wall. And they have an, in Italian, which if, this could be in a movie, it would be hilarious. You know, one says you go this way, one says you go that way. <laughs> I was totally confused. And finally, finally we look at a watch. And we realize we can't go to because we have to be in San Carlo like in an hour, let's say. And I tell them I have to be in San Carlo for an hour and I'll be late for the opera. And one of them must have been a big opera. I said, you cannot be late for the opera. You cannot be late for the opera. I'll get you to the opera. So here I was. I was 24 years old. I wasn't Mayor Giuliani or U.S. Attorney Giuliani. I was just a regular citizen, Italian. You knew I was Italian. And they gave me a police escort <laughs> from Avellino to make sure you got the to San Carlo. And as we're, as we're in the middle of the police escort, I say to I say to my wife, maybe it would actually we can always go see Andrea Chenier, but we're never going to get to see my grandmother. <laughs> we're going to the opera. But I when I started this and two hours ago with them, I want to go to Jesuano, and here I'm going to Naples. I'm going in exactly the opposite direction. She said, well, you can't get out of line now. you got one in front of you, one in back of you. That's you can't one. possibly get out of line. And I ended up at the Opera House. It was a great performance of Andrea Chenier. Fabulous. Beautiful Opera House. But most of it, I just totally confused. Like I was in the wrong place. Yeah. They had turned me around. It's interesting. Yeah, I always said Fellini would, may not be the genius we credit him for because he could have just turned his cameras on Italy and filmed, and it was basically what he... Oh, if you, if you ever see one of those disputes... Oh, Italian great. merchants or Italian oh, arguments? Italian police? Especially those years in the 70s. Oh. When Italy was still really Italy. Yeah, yeah. In the old, you know. It was, when it was a less globalized world, yeah. when Italians were more provincial, it was more, the whole yeah. world was more provincial. Yeah. yeah. You still needed to get Tony to make a phone call. Get Tony to make yeah. a phone call. Mr. Mayor, did you ever get back to the hometown? No, I never did. I've been back to Italy a number of times. So I've been to, to I've been to Milan and I've been to Trieste. Did you ever Never, I never gone to Jesualdo, well, and, go. and I've, yeah, I've never like, been back to Naples. I've been to oh. wait now. I was in Calabria. I was in Calabria for two days with the Bishop of Calabria, but I haven't been in Naples since then, or Sorrento, oh, or Capri. Been to Rome a lot, and been to Milan even more because I go for business. So Milan is the business center, yeah. and, and I will get in a lot, a lot of trouble except for La Scala and the great art. 
It's the most European, least Italian city. Italian even mind. Trieste is more Italian in its own way, even though it was north. President Bush named me as the head of the delegation to close the Winter Olympics. And I thought, oh, Torino's going to be kind of boring. It's going to be like Milan. And I went there. I just loved it. It's a beautiful town. And you think it's northern Italy, so the food won't be great. The food is fabulous. Yeah, yeah it really is. It's not our version of Italian food. Yeah, but it's, it's all, altogether different. But, you know, now in Italy, even in Milan, they got great restaurants because they have southern Italian restaurants. <laughs> yes, right. We've all moved up there, yeah. The first time I was there, which in the 70s, it was much stricter. If you were in Florence, you had Tuscan food. Yeah. I mean, God forbid you'd have, like, Neapolitan food. Yeah. It, would be, it would be terrible. But now it's all mixed together. And, and your dad's family is from Tuscany. My dad's family is from the north, you know, from Tuscany. Grandfather from Monticatini and Mariano, which is right next to it, and my grandmother from Florence itself, and my mother's family from Naples. Her father was in Naples, and her mother was in Avellino. Interesting thing, though, even though they came, you know, they lived maybe 10 miles or 20 miles from each other or five miles from each other, their families, they all met in the United States. Wow. All the grandparents. Where did they come And they got married. When they moved here? Well, I'm sure my, my father's family came to the Lower East Side, and within a short period of time, moved to East Harlem. My mother's family, everybody went to the Lower East Side at first, but then they moved to Brooklyn. Yeah. And my mother and father had two big disputes in their lives. Uh, New York and Brooklyn, Manhattan and Brooklyn. My father preferred Manhattan and a Yankee fan. My mother preferred Brooklyn and a Dodger fan. <laughs> uh, my father thought that, you know, Northern Italians were much superior to Southern Italians. And oh, my, boy. my mother thought that Southern <laughs> Italians were, were almost like French. You know, they were stuck up. Oh, Northern Italians were like French. Yeah, Northern Italians, right. Northern Italians were like yeah. French. They were too stuck up. They thought too, they were too important. And they, were not, and they weren't really what uh, everybody thinks of as Italians, you know, easygoing, loving. They were just as difficult as the Germans or the French. So for years, they would fight about it. And they had a wonderful marriage for 2,000 years. But these were the two big things they would fight about. So when I went to Italy... My job was to come back and tell them which I like better, north oh, or south. Oh, oh, oh. And I, I, had a, I had a definite view when I came back. And I had dinner with them. I tried to avoid it because I knew I could get one of them really angry at me. And they started in on me. Who, which did you like better? I said, well, I did this in northern Italy. It was wonderful and wonderful. Florence, so beautiful, like an outdoor museum. You can almost eat off the, off the streets. Naples, so romantic and so beautiful. You can see the places Caruso was and the singing and... And the, and the mountains, wow. And then Sorrento, my God, it's so beautiful. So I got away with that for about two hours. And then I got pinned, you know, <laughs> which was better. I said, well, I got to tell you. I'll tell you what made up my mind. I went with my wife to a restaurant in Florence. And I tried to order an Italian. And for about half the meal, the waiter humored me. Halfway through the meal, in front of my wife, who I'm trying to impress, he says to me, there's no reason for you to ruin my language. I speak yours fluently. Oh, God. I said, I like Southern Italy better. <laughs> they that's, did. Nobody, that's a huge star on that, your that's the profile new, on our show. That's the, that's the difference, because in yeah. Southern Italy, I tell you, that's when this happened with all the police. In Southern Italy, you go there, and you show them you don't know where you are. The whole town comes whole, to help right, you. You, got police you do that in France. Yeah. You do that in France, and they have you heading towards Siberia. That's what they said and they make fun of your accent. Yeah, it's true. I mean, in Paris, you try to speak French, and you get one little word wrong. say, no, 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 no. Not pronounced that way. <laughs> you know what I do to them when they pronounce English? Yeah. Bad, they say something. You come from New York? I said, no, no, it's New York. It said New York. <laughs> they can't take it. They can't take it. They don't know what's happened to them. Yeah. Nobody's ever done this to them before. They do this to everybody. If you ask, ask Italians, Germans, Spanish, 
English, say, what is it like in Paris? Oh, it's so difficult, particularly with the language. I mean, you try to speak French and every place else, particularly in Italy, if you try to speak their language, they try to help you. Yeah. And you mess up the language. They try, if somebody tries to speak English with us, we don't make fun of them. Yeah. Right. French immediately make fun of them. They do, yeah. They're very, so very this bothered me for years yeah. until I developed my, I call it my Trump response. <laughs> You get my face, I'm going to go twice in your face. <laughs> my husband and I just had this big argument about where to take like our honeymoon. And uh, we went to St. Bart's. It was very pretty. But, you know, ultimately, we found it a little too shishy. Yeah, so, French, like, Frenchy French. Yeah, I'm like, I, I want to go somewhere we like. I want to go to I want to go to Positano with you. And I'm like, uh, I want to go to the south of France. And I was like, Nick, you don't like French food. You don't like French people. Why yeah, do we have to, the French was, I why don't do we have to go? The French don't understand. Now we detour into that. The French don't understand. I have, a, I have a lot of French priest friends. And they just don't get Italian. Italians, they just can't wrap their mind around the Italian mind. Yeah. We throw them off. Well, who can? Throw them That's off. True. They cannot. I have to say one thing in defense of the French, though. They're different in the south of France. And they're different in Burgundy and Bordeaux. They are very different in Normandy, right? You lose a lot of those haughty. Nasty, but so important. People, Fran- Paris is the most wonderful city in the world, except the city that burns every Saturday. I don't know. I don't think of it as one of the most <laughs> beautiful cities. Yeah, I mean, they they pick a couple of blocks to burn every Saturday, and the, and the mayor sits by and says, "Oh, what are we going to do about these?" Can you imagine if that happened uh, with Trump as president? How long would how long go on? No. How long would it go on when I was mayor? You don't get to burn my city. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, You're Nero did that. That, that was just that. that one Italian did that. Nero. I mean, you don't burn my city. You don't. You don't go shooting people in my city. You don't live on the streets of my city, unless I'm a mean person. So I have a different view of homelessness. People see homelessness and they say, "You're getting rid of the homeless. How bad? How terrible? Mm-mm. How terrible is to tolerate the homeless?" Yeah. If you're, I always try to look at poor people who are having trouble, particularly as the mayor. Even though you can't do it quite that way, you've got to analyze it against, suppose this was your brother and the guy's on the street. That's your brother. Would you go and just give him money and let him stay on the street? Yeah. Of course you wouldn't. Your mother would kill you if you did that. Yeah, that's true. You'd go and you'd say, hey, brother, I've I got to help you. Come on, come on, come on, get off the street. And if he said no, you'd say, no, you've got to get off the street. We're going to go to see a doctor or we're going to go to the hospital. Or, or you need money, I'll get you money. We'll get you a place to live. I'll find you a place to live. I tried to turn the city into doing that. So we'd send a police officer and a social worker, and we'd say, look, here's the option doesn't exist. You can't sleep on the streets. See, a long time ago, we became civilized, and we stopped living on the streets. We did that before the Middle Ages. Now, you don't live on the streets because you can't bathe on the streets. You can't urinate on the streets. You can't defecate on the streets, which is what you're going to do if you stay here. And you're going to spread disease throughout my entire city. And then if you stay here too long, you're going to get crazy. You're going to become a paranoid schizophrenic because you've been isolated from society. And then you're going to attack somebody, or somebody's going to attack you. And what kind of city is that? That's a city where people have no common sense, people have no heart. When I see homelessness in a city, I blame the mayor, and I say the mayor doesn't have a heart. Well, his heart is all screwed up, that he can't understand how he's hurting people. So I get really passionate about homelessness. And I see it coming back, when I see it coming back in New York, of all the things that would upset me, and I guess crime would be the most. This is probably the second most yeah. that would upset me. When I see, I just saw some people encamped in the front of a church once again. Man, I had a great one with one church. It was after 9-11, and we had gotten rid of homelessness for about four or five years. It was near Christmas time. It was a church on Fifth Avenue. 
and I was driving down Fifth Avenue about 10 o'clock at night. I hadn't been thinking about homelessness for a long time because of 9-11. Uh, a lot of things didn't get paid attention to because it was all about that. And all of a sudden, I looked out at the car, and I saw all these people in front of a church. And I called the police commissioner, and I said, Bernie, you know, I know we're busy, but we've got to get those people off the street. And I did, and the minister the next day condemned me and said, how could I have taken them off the street? So I, you know, I, he's a minister, but I know as much theology as he does in moral theology. <laughs> so I said, well, I tell you what, I'll put them back there. If you open the door of the church and let them in. I'm not going to put them back there and have them freeze yeah. in 30-degree temperature. And how come you don't open the door of the church? I knew why you didn't. Just open the door of the church and put a couple of cots there, yeah. a little food, and let them use the bathroom of the church. I'm happy. Yeah. Think of it. What mm-hmm. he said? Cancer. Oh, my lawyer said it was too much liability. Mm. It's too much liability to be a Christian? And you're condemning me? Well, then, therefore, you leave them on the steps of your church, and they're going to freeze. i got to save their lives, because you're not saving their lives. Man, the hypocrisy of that. You talk about limousine liberals and, you know, prescribe these things for poor people, but God forbid you take them in your house. You, you know, I'm so, so happy you brought that up, because I'm from Jersey. I'm from seven miles from Manhattan. And I saw how New York was before you were mayor, and I saw how New York changed after you became mayor, the immediate change that happened. And now when I see the homelessness in the city, and I see it encroaching now into New Jersey, now in Hoboken and the same thing, the same thing that's happening here is happening there. I have the exact same thought. How can we, as a civilized society, leave these people who are either afflicted by mental illness, by drug addiction, alcohol addiction, right. on the street, and say that we're protecting their right, know, their right, right to what? The right to destroy themselves. Right to destroy First them. of all, there's no. There, I mean, I know the Constitution pretty well. And there's no right to be homeless. I mean, Franklin and Madison and Jefferson never developed. There's a right of free speech. There's a right to be uh, protected against self-incrimination. Lots of rights. But there's no right to be homeless. In fact, it's just the opposite, because you can't have rights that are going to too much affect the rights of other people. Like, you don't have the right to run up and down the street yelling and screaming. I mean, you can do it if you want. You could say, oh, that's freedom. I can run up and down the street yelling and screaming in the middle of the night. But you can get arrested. You can wake everybody up. So living on a street, first of all, even if it didn't hurt you, hurts everybody else. Because that's why we have plumbing. (laughs) We have plumbing because way back in the Middle Ages, we used to get the plague because people would take their waste, including human waste, and throw it on the sidewalk. Well, that's what they're doing. What do you think they're doing? The How big, stupid are you? They're not the think biggest that. victims. But, that, but then, and, and but then of course they're the biggest victims. Victim. Because let's say they're paranoid schizophrenic to begin. They become worse paranoid schizophrenic, and then some become violent. Not all. So you have two types. You've got the ones that become violent, you've got the ones that are pacifist, and the ones that get pacifist get beaten up by the ones right. who are violent. So what are you doing to these people? Now let's say you get a perfectly normal person who just doesn't have a place to live, and I don't know, he's really, things are messed up, he can't, doesn't know about shelters, he's on the street that night, and you just leave him there. And you just keep bringing them whatever you bring them. Eventually, he's going to become paranoid schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Just think of what it's like if you've been used to living in a home where it's like to live on a street. Oh, you get crazy. It's called getting crazy. <laughs> it makes you crazy. So you go analyze the population. And I used to study them deeply. I bet it hasn't changed. Very, very conservative estimates that 40% are actually diagnosed paranoid schizophrenics. In other words, they're mentally ill. They have a certifiable medical condition. Another 30 or 40% are drug addicts. Maybe 10% at most, God, you could stretch it to 20, are people that just need a place to live, which is the concept that most people have of homeless people. Oh, gee, they just need a place to live. Wrong. The vast majority are suffering from something. Serious. And then even those people that just need a place to live, 
can easily become one of those drug addicts or mentally ill if you leave them out there, if you leave them isolated. So they have to be confronted. I say to mayors, you have to confront homelessness. You can't just brush it aside because it's going to ruin those people's lives, and then it's going to ruin your city. It's getting worse in a lot of cities, too. I mean, we, we Look at San Francisco. It's absurd. Well, like Los Angeles, they're building villages. I mean, I, I, my wife and I walked through part of Los Angeles. It, it was like a tent village. Right. And it, that's, that you're not doing anything for anybody. In that they have place. maps in San Francisco of where they're finding human excrement on the sidewalks. Oh, and you're thinking, well, why do you th- I mean, I, I shouldn't say it, but... How are we in a world like this? This is, this is crazy. Yeah. If, the, if the incidence that, of... Um, Diseases in Los Angeles right. isn't connected to homelessness. It eventually will be. Yeah. Let me just say, from someone who grew up in the sphere of New York, I always attributed, in my opinion, your most Italian American attribute as you're a practical guy. Get it done. Mm. The guy's sick. He's on the street. He we needs are partial, help. However, but get yes. it. I'm sorry. We are partial, but I agree with you. <laughs> He's on the street for a bad reason because right. no one in their right mind would choose that. Absolutely. He's either an addict or he's schizophrenic, right. he's mentally ill. Let's fix this. That to me was the golden rule of your administration was just get it done. And I think that that's, that's what a connection, the Italian-American connection. I mean, now we're here, we're eating the, the Zeus beer and we're talking about <laughs> grapes and that, that kicks in. But I was in college when you became mayor. That's what I said, just get it done. That's I, 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 it's so. I'm so happy we're here today having this discussion because I think that you were so on the money with your take on on homelessness, and now I see these people suffering. And I'm walking on the streets, and I'm like, this poor guy. I saw a guy defecate in, in mm. Manhattan last summer, and I said, who's benefiting from this? The man has lost his dignity. The number one thing he's been robbed of. We've allowed him to lose his dignity. So how can we? What false sense of freedom? And I think it's our the Christian civilization roots that we built Europe on and we built this country on. The compass that we use to determine these things is being taken out of out of, out of the, the public discussion. And I think this is what happens. Yeah, yeah I, think that, I, I think I think that's, that's really true. I think it's a it's a combination of the Christian morality and the and the, and the Catholic morality. Sure. And then the sort of heart. Um, so I always thought of it as you have this very practical sense. You have to get it done, but then you also have a heart. And the idea of that is you start thinking about it from the point of view of the, per- of the person. I think there are probably a lot of people that look at homeless people and they don't r- relate. Yeah. They think, oh, well, if they want to be homeless, let's just help them be homeless. And they don't do the little step that I do, which is, well, suppose my brother, and I passed him in the street, and I really knew him. Would I just pass him in the street, just leave him there, or just throw $2 at him? Right. No, I wouldn't. I'd go do an intervention the way families do, right? And I think that a lot of social philosophy doesn't get analyzed that way because they're not people. They don't, they lose, uh, people in power and people with wealth lose the sense that there are, that there are people. They're commodities or they're numbers. Yeah, you and I see him as a person. I I see the guy on the street as a person so it doesn't lead me to just uh, enable his problem. It leads me to trying to help solve his problem. And if I'm going to just give him money, it's like if you have a kid who's a drug addict and you give the kid money. Yeah. Well, you'd be, you'd be seen immediately as an enabler of your, of your kid's drug addiction. Uh, a good parent is not going to do that unless you absolutely have to, and then you get them to a doctor right away because you're going to keep them alive that way. So these people, you have to relate to them as being your brothers or your sisters. Or, but uh, they don't give you credit for that. No, they don't. Right. Because I'm a, because I'm a Republican. They as the big ogre, and, and it angers me because you cared about these people. And you but you see, it doesn't bother me. 
But it's not <laughs> but it's not but see I think also but for people who didn't live in those years here, right? I went in, in I think it was January 14, 1984, was my ninth birthday. My mother and my grandmother we got on the bus in North Island to go to the King and I. And we get to Port Authority and a guy OD'd and collapsed right in front of me. Scariest thing I ever saw in my life, right? So my impression of the city in those years were things like people, uh, Port Authority was the scariest oh, place man. on earth, you know? So much stuff like that happened. That was ingrained in you. And, but it gets back to this. How many of these people are pawns in other people's chess games of politics mm -hmm. when they're sold? You know, it's the idea. What are we doing? You know? What are we doing as a society? So I, I, a couple of years ago when they had all those problems in Baltimore, uh, they had a press conference in downtown Baltimore, and all the Baltimore politicians were there, one of whom is now the chairman of the committee in Congress who is pursuing President Trump and probably should be spending his time doing this. And they said something really stupid like this. Things have been like this in downtown Baltimore for 60 years, meaning decrepit, broken down, lots of crime. They believe police hurting the citizens, but the citizens killing each other. I looked at them all, and I'm looking at them. These guys have been in power for 40 years. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I would have been embarrassed to show yeah. up. But this, this, this is true of Harlem. We'd have guys like Charlie Rangel, and they'd show up. Look how terrible it is in Harlem. You've been representing the place for 30 years and pulling money out of it and yeah. becoming a millionaire. Tell me how you became a millionaire in public office. It, you, you can call me racist, pal, but I'm not. I care about your people. I don't take any money from them. I haven't been sitting there watching them kill each other in record numbers for 30 years and not doing a damn thing about it for and getting money in inner city broadcasting. So don't tell me that I'm a racist because you're a crook. <laughs> you don't care about your people and you've been stealing money while you're in public office. I have any respect for you. So go ahead, say what you want to say. I know who I am. I spend a lot of time trying to figure out if what I do is right. If you can convince me that I'm not, I'll change it. And I try really hard to do that. And a lot of these people, politicians, are complete phonies, you know. What a bunch of garbage. How about just figuring out what's right and wrong? And maybe occasionally you agree with each other because this is right, and then we disagree with each other about some things. But it's become so crazy, and people aren't in the equation anymore. It doesn't matter if people are. Think about all the children that are cr taken across the border as instruments. You know how many of those explain kids... That, explain that, Yolanda, because there's people so, out there who are not going to understand. I get what you're saying, but so, they're not understand. So there's a very different kind of immigration that's going on. And I've been involved in immigration since I worked for Ronald Reagan in 1981. And until 15, 20 years ago, the typical immigrant across the border, illegal, was a Mexican coming to work. And uh, it was good and bad. It was good for the economics, because you, you wouldn't have had farms in California and Texas, because nobody would do the work except them. And they were heavy, uh, heavy work, good work, good workers. Some of the people, criminals. Plus, when you see people just walking across the border, a thousand of them, if you're an organized criminal, or you're a drug dealer, or you're a terrorist, you say, hey, I can hide with them. Yeah. You know, a thousand coming across, nobody's checking anything, I'll put 20 of my people in. And that was similar to our own story. Yeah, that, that used, to be, yeah, that used to be the case. Now it's worse. It's worse because the people coming across are not basically Mexican. They're coming from Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, where conditions are catastrophic. There are so many murders in some of those countries, they don't even count the bodies. I mean, you can have 12 murders a day in a little country. People are fleeing there who are scared out of their minds. And people are fleeing there who are MS-13, because I can get in with the people who are out of their minds. And then they bring children with them. Because if you get the child and you attach yourself to the child, then we're not going to deport you quickly. 
And, and then if you come across like a pregnant person, you get a kid born here, then you have a kid that's a United States citizen. They exploit all of this. Uh, it isn't just poor people. A lot of poor people wouldn't even know it. Somebody has to tell them. People who are exploiting them tell them this. And then they bring those kids across the border. That becomes their anchor to being here. And then we're very, very sympathetic about separating the families. Now you're talking about hundreds of thousands like this. And it becomes the ability of extremely dangerous people to come into this country. So MS-13, which is very organized, sees a thousand people coming across, maybe half orchestrated by people who are getting money from them, maybe half that are just poor people. This is a wonderful opportunity to bring in 100 MS-13 members because nobody's checking anything, and if they are, they're checking very quickly, and nobody's going to do a real background check. And this has been going on for years. And if we don't stop it, we're going to have to get to the catastrophe in this country. And um, what Trump is trying to do is exactly what the last five presidents have tried to do, and Congress supported, except he's just doing it a lot more effectively. And second, they, they don't like him, and they want to get him out of office. So they won't give him a victory, even if it's good for the country, which to me drives me crazy. When you, when you got elected, when you first ran for mayor in 1989, right, um, you were up against David Dinkins, Manhattan Borough President. He beat Ed Koch in the primary. I don't, right. think, I don't know if that was, that was somewhat unexpected, I guess. Right. Uh, but as I understand it, you know, even then, the conservative party in the city did not uh, put you on their ticket. Right, first time. First time. First time they didn't put me on the ticket. Second time they remained blank. And the third time they did. They did finally put you on. That's right. it. Um, because I wasn't, I've never been a classic ideologue. So if you looked at my views, probably 70% of them were conservative. But they weren't 30% more conservative. Now, a lot of politicians would just check those last three boxes so you could say I was a conservative. But I, 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 I don't know why I didn't do it. I didn't start as a politician. Yeah. So I was a lawyer, and I was a prosecutor, and I was a defense lawyer. And I only went into politics because I thought I could fix the city Somebody put this in my head once. I was prosecuting corruption in the Koch administration in New Haven, Connecticut. And somebody said to me, you know, you know so much about what's wrong with the city. You should be the mayor because you could fix it. And they didn't just mean corruption. They meant drug dealing because I was a narcotics prosecutor, organized crime, you know, a lot of the financial crime. And I said, that's really a true point. I really know everything that's wrong with the city. I know about Wall Street. I know about the drug dealing in, in all the different boroughs. I know about organized crime. I know about political corruption. But I don't know anything about being a politician or governing. I wonder if that's enough. And I'm a Republican in a Democratic city. And maybe right, if I'm going to run, maybe I should run for governor. Because conceivably you could elect a Republican governor like George Pataki or Nelson Rockefeller. And then somebody talked me into running. I think Guy Molinari did. Oh, that's an Italian-American legend, Guy Molinari. Guy Molinari announced on the radio, uh, on television, that I'd make a good candidate for mayor without telling me. And I got 2,000 calls that day, including my, my chief assistant, Dennison Young, who's the most ethical person in the world, who said, we're going to get in a lot of trouble because everybody's going to think you put him up to it, and you're not allowed to be in politics. Because I'm a U.S. attorney. I said, Denny, I didn't put him up to it. I never talked to him. I said, that's impossible. He said, oh, we believe me. He didn't believe me. He said, the man wouldn't do that. I said, you don't know him. I never cares if you, what, you, you just put you up for it. So we, we, I, I wouldn't talk to him, and I had Denny call him, and Denny said, the day you get out of office, they, you have to meet with him, but you're not going to talk to him until you get out of office. So I did, and he talked me into running. And I was running against Ed Koch. Ed Koch got defeated by David Dinkins. And when David Dinkins won the nomination, I was 27 points behind him. Wow. 
and then we ended up being only a point and a half. We lost by only a point and a half. The and tightest I margin in, in the oral history, too. Pretty, I probably was, yeah. I think 30-something or 40-something thousand votes. 47,000 votes. With a lot more cast than we cast now. Yeah. And so that convinced me, well, gee, I'm okay at this. I mean, I'm not a real idiot. I, I had begun as a terrible candidate. I had the good fortune of having Roger Ailes as my political advisor. He trained me from being a lawyer to being a politician. And he, I'll tell you, interesting about this show, he brought out things about my being Italian-American that I utilized. Like, I, would, I was a lawyer, been in court. Even with a jury, you're a prosecutor mostly, so you're not very emotional. You've got to be very rational and very... I could be emotional if I had to be, but I probably was almost embarrassed in my emotions. Yeah. And in an appellate court, my God, you can't be emotional. So I would go on the first couple of parades, and I love to see the pictures of them because I wave like a kind of a jerk. You know, I couldn't, wouldn't even wave my hand. I put my hand up around my shoulder, <laughs> and he would show it to Very me. Very He said, "If you're at a ball game, is that what you do? You get up in a ball game and go like this. You get up and you yell and scream, go Yankees, go Yankees.' So that's what I want to see from you. I want to see that hand go all the way up. I want to see you wave so people can see you from far away." He said, and when you go over and shake hands with him, when you shake hands with another man, what do you do? I, I shake the hand very, you know, everybody wants to have a strong handshake, so I give them a strong hand. Yeah, but you go up to them, you're just touching their fingers. Like, you're just touching their fingers, and like, you want to get away as quick as possible. So why don't you go in there and make believe it's your, your Italian cousin or your uncle? What do you do with your uncle? I said, I hug him. I said, I hug him. And all of a sudden, I've started hugging, and I loved it. And then, then I found out that, that so, you know, since I was a Republican, Half the city hated me. So they would boo. And I would go into the booing crowds and hug them. And they'd stop wow. booing and they'd start cheering. Wow. <laughs> it was, and it, it made me a lot of Italian this. Yeah, and then he taught me the first time, first time I was going to debate, he prepared me for a debate, and he said, what would you do about education? And I said, one, two, three, four, five. And he taught it for me, and he said, that's a great answer for education 101. You just failed politics. Wow. I said, why? He said, the minute you hear about education, just forget all that stuff about one, two, three, four. What do you think about when you, when you think about it? I think about my kids. He said, well, then tell them that. Well, the first thing you think about education is your kids. So I want you to say what you feel. Say, when I hear education, I think about my children. And when I become mayor, I'm going to think about your children. See, after that, I don't care what you say. Wow. <laughs> you can say one, you can say five, <laughs> you can say ten, <laughs> you can say thirteen. He said, the, per, per, the, the difference in politics and law is when you're, when you're in an appellate court and you're arguing, it's rational. You can't, if the judge says, how do you distinguish this case and that case? He can't say, oh, I have kids, because <laughs> he'd throw you out of court. He said, but these people want to know who you are. They're electing a leader. They want to know if they can trust you. They don't even have to like you. They just want to trust you. So then after, we can work on like. And he said, so you, they got to know you think like them. That, yeah, yeah, you think about children, and you think about, when you think about crime, you don't just think about putting criminals in jail, you think about the people that are raped, and you think about the people that are beaten, and you think about the people who have been, are killed, and the parents that lose their kids, that that's what's motivating you, and, and that is what's motivating you, but don't be afraid to say it, and that was, that was like a real catharsis, I mean, a real change for me, that changed me from a really horrible politician to at least one that could do it, probably changed the way I thought about things, too. You talk about your motivation for these really transformative policies. And I want to go back in time a minute because when you were the uh, attorney for the Southern District, you went after the mafia. And I, as an Italian-American, as an Italian-American community leader, as someone who thinks about who we are, 
I like to, to talk about democracy because I think this idea that somehow if we ignore the fact that it's there, that stigma is going to go away is just asinine. So the Mafia Commission trial, 1985, right? 85, 86, right. Was there some ethnic inspiration behind it? Because wow. you were a bulldog. Yeah, I don't know if there was. Um, so I sure knew about the Mafia, right? A lot of people, you know, in, the, in those days, there was no Mafia, there was no Mafia. I knew they existed. My father would tell me about them. My mother would tell me about them. I would hear about them. Friends knew about them. I mean, a lot of it, Italians were discriminated against because of the mafia. Legitimately, could be very angry about it and should be. But I always looked at it this way. In some ways, they were to blame for that, meaning the mafia. So instead of making believe they don't exist, which makes other people who are looking at you really worry about you, Right. Like, everybody's involved. Because everybody can see like, it. Yeah. I mean, Mario Cuomo, who obviously was never involved in the mafia, but he made a very big mistake once when I was U.S. attorney. He said, there is no mafia. Well, that's really crazy. Mario knew there was a mafia. I knew there was a mafia. And Mario said that probably because he was just disgusted with all the discrimination, which I got. But I think it was the wrong approach. So then people who listen to that say, well, I know there's a mafia. And this very prominent Italian-American says, there is no mafia. This sounds like the Soviet Union. Yeah, you know, right. What is the KGB? You know, we didn't do it. Or like Iran, Iran today says that it wasn't their ship 10 miles off Iran that attacked the two ships, even though they're identified 15 different ways. Not us. Not us. So I always took the view, and I don't know if I, it was just logic or my, fa my father who used to say, my father would always say the best way to get rid of this is Italian-Americans should be the ones confronting them, getting rid of them. So that probably was in, in my head. But I, I certainly didn't go into being, I didn't go to law school with the idea of going after the mafia. I actually wanted to be a defense lawyer. And then when I was in law school, I heard about the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I became a law clerk to a judge and then a prosecutor. Um, I was always interested in the mafia. I mean, I read books about it. Of course, I watched The Godfather. And, and then as a young assistant U.S. Attorney, I had a couple of cases involving the mafia. But I did 100 cases, and maybe this constituted four of them. The most prominent one being Vito Genovese's son-in-law, who Vito allowed us to prosecute because he was cheating on his sister, <laughs> which they usually don't do. The mafia, mafia is a very, very structured organization then. It's a goofball organization now. And even when I was dealing with it in the final stages, it already had fallen apart. It was, it was horrible. I mean, they were killers. The worst thing they did really is prey on poor people, particularly Italian people. I mean, my, my grandfather owned a tobacco shop, great-grandfather. So my grandmother would tell me stories about how the black hand yeah. would come into his tobacco shop and require him to give money. Then he owned a tavern. And in order to avoid having to pay them money, he had to pay the police money. Wow. We had a choice. Do I pay the crooked police or do I pay the crooked mafia? Yeah. One or the other. And they probably shared the money. Right? Yeah, <laughs> they were sure. shaking down this poor immigrant, right? And that's where they lived us. So I think this idea that anybody's sympathetic with them is ridiculous because they were holding Italian-Americans back. I don't just mean by reputation. Deliberately, like, I'm going to take your money. Then you're a poor person. I'm going to take a third of your money or 20% of your money. So I always had this angry feeling about them. And I prosecuted Vito's, his name was, I remember his nickname, Julie Peters. Obviously, it wasn't his name. I can't remember his full name. But he, I, I, I remember that case because he threatened to kill me during the trial, which was great. He decided to get on the witness stand. None of these guys get on the witness stand. And I cross-examined him. And I was always a very fierce cross-examiner. And the guy in the middle of the cross-examiner said, I'm going to Excuse me. I'm going to effing kill you. In front of the jury, I'm going to effing kill you. 
I almost had a resist going, okay, great. <laughs> I just convicted you, Jerko. Thanks for jerk stealing off. my case. <laughs> I just convicted you, Jerko. Yeah. And we had all these people testifying for us who were victims of his loan sharking. Some guy that he took his hand and smashed it in the car door. Because the, the guy was like a Wall Street guy who was, a, who was a big better on basketball games. And he got into them. And they owed him a lot of money. And this guy used to go up to a Wall Street law firm and they'd pay off the guy's debts. Because wow. he had a trust. And then one day he stopped doing it. And they grabbed the guy, took him over on 8th Avenue. And they got a car and they put it, held his hand in the car and they smashed the door in his car. So he testified as a witness. And I had him show his hand to the whole jury. It was all crushed in. And then after the trial was over, I said, "How you know, the mafia, nobody ever testifies against him. And I asked the FBI agent who put the case together, how come we had all those witnesses? And he said, well, you, you don't know that he was cheating on Vito's uh, daughter? Wow. I said, yeah, but Vito said, it's okay. And Vito was in jail then, but he sent the word out. Yeah, we, we don't want to kill him. That would be too tough on, on, I guess, his nieces. So let's let them put him in jail for 20 years or 10 years or whatever. Wow. And it was interesting because usually they don't do that. Usually, because there's a lot of cheating going on, I guess, and they're all families, they usually ignore that. But in some case, for some reason, this bothered Vito. Mr. Mayor, did you receive any flack or, or just kind of criticism oh, yeah. because you were an Italian no, prosecutor? Don, right, I did. Sure. A, t a certain, certain number of Italian-American groups, including the Italian-American Civil Rights League, condemned me for doing it. But I just pointed out that Joe Colombo started the Italian-American yeah, Civil the, Rights League. We talked about that on one of our podcasts. You know, I, can, I, got, I said, I mean, look, guys, I know you're stuck. <laughs> if Joe Colombo ran my organization, I'd have to condemn people, too, so I'm not taking it seriously. <laughs> I, but I thought my grandmother used to yell at the television at you. Because I was doing it? Why are you going after the television? Yeah, I know. Why are you going? I never forget it. Well, one time. Grandma, they're terrible people. I know. It doesn't matter. Why did the Italian go after? I'm from Bensonhurst, and, and I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember the pre-Giuliani Bensonhurst and the post-Giuliani Bensonhurst. But then there was that, you know, my birthday's on the 4th of July, and you used to always oh, the, the to it, buy fireworks. So yeah, oh yeah, the fireworks. And the Gotti fireworks. Uh, we broke up the Gotti fireworks. I that was my big was, achievement. You know, when you were when you were mayor, it was just like there was a cop on every block of 18th Avenue, and if you lit up a sparkler, it, right. I mean, they swarmed. But Gotti used to do a big uh, Fourth of July celebration of his own, you know, yeah. right, right at where his club was, yeah. and uh, for years, and the cops would protect it and let it happen. And I decided, well, we're going to get rid of the damn thing. You're not allowed to do that. He doesn't have a permit. I can't tell you, you know, my police department wasn't exactly anxious to do that. Of it was sort of like, we, well, we let this go on for years. We let this go on for years. It's really harmless. It really is. It's harmless. Every two or three years, somebody gets his hand blown off from the firecracker. You know why I got very big on fireworks and getting rid of them? I was very close to the chief of the emergency room at Bellevue because in the four years before I was mayor, uh, because I was involved in law enforcement, and because the police supported me in 1989, I'd go to almost every police shooting, even as a civilian. I think his name was Scalia. It was Dr. Scalia, just like the, you know, like Nino, like the, the justice, but not related. So we became very good friends. He was a brilliant doctor, and to be head of the emergency room at, it was at, at Kings County, he used to tell me, and we could almost not talk. I mean, uh, he would talk for two minutes, and then another gunshot case would come in. Wow. And I was born two blocks from Kings County, so it meant a lot to me. And he would say to me, this is like a war zone. He said, we're, we're doing more gunshot operations than ever were done in, I was in Vietnam, ever done in Vietnam, wow. maybe three to one. He said, just look at the statistics. We get 2,000 people killed every year. 
we get 10,000 shootings every year. That's, those are war numbers. Yeah. We never hit numbers like that in Iraq or Afghanistan. Wow. And I got to know him really, really well. And one time he said to me, you know the other thing that really is crazy in this city? Every 4th of July, look at that, week before and week after, I must do 50, 60 uh, operations of one kind or another or surgery or something where somebody blows their, part of their hands off, blows fingers off, gets blind in one eye, gets scarred. People are crazy with these fireworks. They don't know how to use them. It's all over the city. So then you go, go to Bellevue, you've got even more. Very good, go to Bellevue. Because of all the stuff that goes on down in Chinatown, they have to bring it to Bellevue because a lot of the operations are so intricate. Yeah. And I went to see the guy at Bellevue. He said the same thing to me. So I forgot about it. I became mayor. I started concentrating on crime. About two years into it, Dr. Scalia said to me, things are getting much better here. We're down to like normal numbers, but you never did anything about those damn fireworks. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he reminded me about the fireworks. So I came back to City Hall. I went crazy on fireworks. We began a whole program. We started analyzing where they came from. We started cutting them off in the south. We started seizing them starting in January, so they took the number all the way down. First year, we did a great job, but Gotti still did his fireworks. And the police, I told them to go do it, but they didn't do it. So I came up with a new program. Police have helicopters. I got tired of the fireworks that I used to have to go to in the East River. They used to bore me. So when those fireworks were going, I'd go up in a helicopter, and I'd go all around the city, and I'd have the connected to the police headquarters, and I'd tell them where the fireworks were. <laughs> and I would send the police there. You were on fireworks patrol. Yourself. So that's how I got them. That's how I got them to do Gotti. And then the next day, he just gave up. He decided he didn't want the confrontation. Wow. And um, so I thought this was a really bad thing for him to do because he was buying the community. The idea is, oh, these guys were like Robin Hoods. No, they weren't. They wanted to own you. Yeah. So they were good to you, but then they wanted thirty percent of your business, right? right. Yeah. That's a big mythology. Yeah. That they were yeah. only taking taking from some you know far off people. Right. But they were really taking from their own community. Yeah. Now the reality is, like everybody else, there were there were all criminals. You had to be a killer, or they wouldn't let you in. You, right. you wouldn't be a made member okay. unless you kill somebody, which makes sense because they can't trust you if they don't have a homicide on you, right? Oh yeah. So, every one of them is capable of murder. But then, having said that. People misunderstand this. There were good ones and bad ones. Mm -hmm. Or maybe not so bad and really bad. Meaning somebody like Fat Tony Salerno didn't like killing. It always offended him. Always took it seriously. And very often tried to be euphemistic about it and let people go to meetings other than him when they had a vote on murder. And somebody like Gotti loved to do it and liked to be there and watch it. So those are two very different people. Yeah, yeah different pathologies. Yeah. Here. And one... One you can actually say about, my God, if things had gone right in his life, maybe he could have been a very successful businessman, because a lot of these guys were very bright. And the other one you could say, but even if he wasn't in the mafia, he'd have been a stone-cold killer. Criminal, right. yeah. So you had both. And then every gradation. And I listened to 4,000 hours of them on tape, so I really got to learn their, their mentality. Is it true that the Sicilian mob had a hit out on you? Yeah, $800,000. That seemed high or low to you? Well, the time was high. It was 19... It was 19... If you want to know... No, nowadays it would be about 10 million, right? That's good, all right. That's right. Maybe 8 million, 10 million. That's a pretty good number. I was kind of proud of that. And I had just been U.S. attorney like a short while, but we did the first real... And Louis Free ran this. We did the first real investigation of the Sicilian Mafia in America. And what we did was we discovered the pizza connection. And it sounds kind of silly, pizza connection. It's very serious. The Sicilian Mafia 
came up with a kind of a counterintelligence idea. They were doing business, usually heroin, with the American mafia. And they're two separate organizations. Sure. They're two different commissions, two different, and they don't necessarily like each other, but they're doing business together. And they're related somewhat, but not, they don't like each other. So they were doing business. And of course, the Sicilian mafia, trust anybody, always thought they'd get cheated, that heroin would come in, and the American mafia would have said, we're going to pay so much for it, and then they say, well, there's not enough heroin, or it's not good quality, or da 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 So they came up with a very smart idea. We're going to have agents in America. We're going to have people there doing an examination. Just like it was a legitimate business, right? You were selling a real quality product. And they'd send over, like, maybe a couple hundred of these guys. But they had to create a front for them. They bought them pizza shops. They bought up pizza shops in places like Peoria, Illinois. Wow. All through the Midwest, Pennsylvania, upstate New York. Not in New York City, not where you have this intense effort to look at organized crime, but in places where they'd look like just another Italian with his pizza place. Some of them made money, some of them didn't. They were all wealthy, but they pretended not to be. Every time a shipment was coming in, a lot of them would come through New Orleans. They'd all come down to New Orleans. There'd be like a meeting. <laughs> they'd all come from all the parts of the country. Like a pizza maker's convention. And then they'd be there. And they'd be there. They'd have as many people there as the American Mafia had. And they couldn't be cheated anymore. And it oversimplifies it. They did other things too. But it was a brilliant idea. You know, we're not, we don't trust you anymore. When we crack that, that actually developed a lot of the evidence for Italy to prosecute the people in Italy. So I became very, very close to Judge Falcone and Judge Borsellino. And Judge Falcone worked in my office for three years, wow. became a close friend. I taught him baseball, taught him American wow. baseball, took him to Yankee Stadium. Did he take to it? Yeah. Wow. He, went, he went back to Italy with the evidence we helped get for him and evidence he helped get for us. And he put over 1,000 of them in prison. And, of course, then in 1993, they killed him with his new wife coming out of the Palermo airport. Um, and I told him six months before, and maybe I can get this tape sometime. I, I actually interviewed him uh, for Inside Edition. Wow. And I said to him, why are you going to go back to Sicily? You shouldn't go to Sicily. Because the Italian government wouldn't let me go to Sicily. I once got an award from, I think, the University of Palermo. I was so excited. I'm going to go to Sicily. I'll get my award. And the Italian Counselor General came to see me and said, the government would appreciate it if you took the award here in New York or Rome. Wow. But we don't want you to go to Sicily because they'll kill you. But they're not like the American Mafia. They love to kill prosecutors, judges, law enforcement people, and they love to kill you. So the $800,000 one got resolved quickly. The FBI and the Italian police found the f people involved. I was real safe. Then I put a whole bunch of them in prison for a long time. Never got another one until about a year and a half before I left. And I'll tell you exactly who did it. Carmine Persigo, who just died, put out a contract on me because we had convicted him. He was in prison. He had a 100-year sentence, and he was conducting his business from prison. So I put him in solitary confinement. Wow. And you don't usually put... I, I, he's probably the only person I ever put in solitary confinement because I don't believe in it. I think it's inhumane, and maybe for questioning occasionally if it's a terrorist. But I put him in solitary confinement because there's no way we could stop him from yeah, running his business. his business. Yeah. I mean, the, the guy knew we were taping him. I mean, the way... It wasn't right. It didn't take a genius to figure out he's running his business. They come and visit him, and he'd say, make sure you collect this from Louie, wow. and make sure you collect... And he's being taped. It's very Talk rash. about Fatsha. Yeah. But it was yeah. like, screw you. You can't do anything okay, about it. You can't do anything. What, what are you going to do? You have me in jail for 100 years. What are you going to do to me? I said, I don't know what you're going to do. We're going to put you in solitary confinement. You're not going to have any visitors. That's what we're going to do to you. Well, he still gets visitors, and he's still being taped, and he puts out a $400,000 contract on me. And I was very insulted. <laughs>
Just yeah, think. You can't go down. Five years, I put, I don't know, maybe 500 of these guys in prison, including the heads of the five families, and I go down in value? Maybe you look the other way. Maybe I go from 800, 50% decrease in value? I think it's more business. Well, and that's the, time, that, that's the time that I started to get protected because um, before I had children, I thought I was immortal. I didn't think anybody could kill me. So before, the first time they did it, I just said, yeah, let them try. Yeah, let them try to kill me. And they taught me how to use a gun. They got me a marshal's badge so I could carry a gun. But I, I, don't, I never even, I had, the, I had the gun, I was trained, but I never took it with me. I was always afraid somebody would take it from me and shoot me. <laughs> but I don't know, I don't know what I thought I could do if they shot me. But when you're young, you don't think that way. And then after I had Andrew, and before Caroline, that's when this and when they came to me and said, well, this time you have to take protection. And for some strange reason, I had been offered like five times. I said, okay. That was costing my kid because I thought, oh, gee, I, now I can't get killed. Yeah. Right. You know, and now I, there's a serious purpose for me to be alive. And, wow. Um, and, but I always was very careful with my own assistance, always to get them protection. Because even though the mafia had a rule, they don't kill prosecutors, they don't kill judges, they don't kill lawyers, every once in a while you get a crazy one. Yeah. Like, Persico was nuts. Persico really meant it. We had Persico taped for two years. So I know everything about him. I know everything about Fat Tony. I know about his kids. I know about his wife. I know about his fights with Margaret. It's, it's like I was part of the family. It's crazy. I know, really the, crazy. I know the ones that were very anxious to kill and the ones that were reluctant to kill. I know how much they hated each other, all the terrible things they would say about each other. But almost like an Italian family, right? <laughs> <laughs> that fat Tony, I don't know that fat Tony. All he thinks about is eating, eating, eating. We got a freaking business to run here. Fat Tony's going about eating. What the hell do we make him a, a don for? I mean, Jesus. I loved it. I was here at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm sitting there laughing my head off. The FBI would look at me because a lot of them weren't Italian, so they thought they were all like crazy. Yeah. Like imagine this guy's this guy, this guy's the head of this guy's the head of one of the major organized crime families. His name, his, his name is Fat Tony. That's the best part. Of the which world. changed over the years. Originally he was Tony Fats, but as he became more distinguished, he became Fat Tony. What's interesting in this whole argument is that you know we have to hear so much as Italian Americans about being associated with the mafia. We don't hear as much about people like you, Mr. Mayor, who are prominent Italian Americans who go. Who go after the mob, right? Or like Petrosino, you know, we hear about oh. them, but nobody's making constant blockbuster movies or television shows on HBO about, about the good that. guys. About the good guys. No, that's right. true. I mean, the, the movies right. are made from the point of view of organized crime and uh, how terrible it is, and not the fact that at least as many or more, probably more uh, Italian Americans were part of the effort to get rid of them. Yeah. And also, another thing that's really important, I always felt because I'd be honest about the mafia, I could, I could get through to certain people with the following thought. This is not really Italian-Americans. This is 1% of 1%. Yeah. Everybody has that. So I, I say that now with, you know, about uh, discrimination against African-Americans and crime. Oh, African-Americans commit a lot of crime. No, they don't. A certain percentage commit crime. Uh, maybe a little more than others because of the conditions, maybe. But everybody has people that commit crimes. Irish people had the IRA. They had, uh, they had uh, the gang in Boston. They had the worst, on the west side of Manhattan, they had the worst uh, hit squad in the city way into the 1980s, 1990s. Wow. In fact, the ma mafia would contract with them. The mafia would contract with them to do 
really difficult hit. Because it was easier to do that. But no, who's going to suspect? What do you look at? You see a mafia hit, who are you looking for? You're looking for somebody that looks like, you know, the Godfather yeah. guy, like Luca Brazzi. Yeah. Not, a, not a guy with red hair, and, you know. Right. <laughs> well, the government hired uh, Greg Scarpa a time to go oh. down to, uh, to find the KKK uh, members. Well, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, of course. You always, I mean, I mean, Gotti did the hit at Sparks with out-of-town hitmen. But the thing about Gotti, which... I can't think of any other high-level mafia guy who would do this. He was on the scene to make sure it went right. He was right across the street. Wow. He hired these two guys to do it, who were expert hitmen. They killed uh, Castellano and his buddy, and it was a very well-executed hit. They did it. It was right near Christmas time, like December 16th, December 18th, something like that. So the place was really crowded. It was 5.30. Everybody's coming out of the buildings, and everybody's going to the shopping, and everybody's... And he's walking into Sparks, and these two guys come up to him in trench coats. Boom, 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 boom. He goes down. Gotti is there with Sammy the Bull. Across the street, Gotti's ready with his gun. In case they screwed up, he can go right up there and put a bullet in the head. Wow. To make sure it happened. That's Despite the fact that they probably that's grab him, take him. <laughs> that's micromanagement. And it's a guy, I'm sorry, who likes killing. Who likes to watch. Who likes killing. Yes, as opposed to you. Fat Tony where he didn't even want to know. He'd almost pretend it wasn't happening. Wow. Oh, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Uh-huh. Talk to somebody else. Talk to somebody else. So those two guys, they had trench coats on. They walked down the street. They didn't run away the way an amateur would. They walked right in the crowd. All of a sudden, halfway down the block, you see the two trench coats. They take the trench coats off. So what do the cops do? They show up and say, Castellano was hit by two tall guys. They look Italian or Spanish or whatever with trench coats on. Let's look for the trench coats. Let's look for the trench coats. No trench coats. The guys are in suits. Wow. Two blocks away, where there's least traffic, they get into a car. Before they even had a good identification, the guys are on the plane going back to Sicily. Wow. That's a, <laughs> I mean, smart. Yeah. Not stupid. Yeah, they well got all the way from Sicily. Yeah, they brought they them in. Wow. I mean, they brought in. They brought in hitmen, right? Were, were the Sicilian hitmen considered the highest? No, not particularly. But the idea is. You want to bring in a Sicilian hitman because you can get rid of him rather than some guy in your family. Or you might want to use an Irish guy from Boston to do a hit in, in, in New Orleans. And that cooperation between the mafia and the Irish mob was very, very strong. The Irish mob in New York used to be called the Westies. And they were almost like a subcontractor to the mafia. Is it safe to say that the assumption is that organized crime really is a, a shell of its former self today? Oh, yeah. I, I call it a depleted brain pool. Wow. Because, look, part of the mafia attraction for the guys that were more like Fat Tony and not the gaudy pathological murderer type was they had no other way to succeed. Yeah. They grew up on the street. Um, they had no opportunity for education, which maybe was a mistake of their parents or who knows what. Um, I think it may even be the Italian-American... We talked about the Italian-American culture. We didn't value education in that first generation, maybe even a little to the second totally changed now. So this was a way of learning how, like, why do you end up with um, African-American guys involved in drug dealing? They grow up on a street. They uh, grow up in a situation where nobody's teaching them the value of education, and the street looks great. I mean, these guys are important. They're the tough guys in the neighborhood. They're the guys with the beautiful cars. The same thing is true for Italians and African-Americans. So the tough guy in the neighborhood was the mafia leader. Right. Look at Bronx Tale. That tells the story, right? Yeah. The, well done. The, yeah. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story. And it describes probably you, you multiply that by, you know, hundred thousand. 
and you start to see why people went into the mafia. Now, that kid luckily had a father who directed him the other way. A lot of people didn't have a father who did. In fact, some fathers would have said, well, you make the family very rich. Make the family very rich. Not everybody's moral. Nobody's decent, including Italians. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> but the main thing is, we're no more immoral, no more indecent than anybody else. Everybody has their burden. Everybody has a prejudice. And the reality is, it's a small percentage. It probably has some reality, but it's a very small percentage, and it gets exaggerated. But if we deny it, it's like the Muslim attacks get me very upset because they're not condemned enough by the Muslim community. It is not because most of the Muslim community is terrorist. They're not. But they do, for less educated people, they create that impression because they look like they're protecting it yeah. instead of saying, what a terrible thing they did when they hit the World Trade Center. See, and how embarrassing it is to me that they were... That they were. Now, some do, but they're not the majority. Yeah. And they get yelled down. They're made to feel like, or if you get a black person who says that about African-American murder, they become an Uncle Tom. But they're actually telling the truth. Yeah, they have bad people. And you got to confront those bad people, and you got to get rid of them. And the faster you do that, the faster you kind of move on. It's amazing to put it in that perspective. I, there's an imam in, in Harlem called Imam Pasha. And there was a police shooting when I was mayor, and I went to the Friday afternoon service. And a large portion of the people there are, are ex-convicts because they convert in prison. And Imam Pasha runs the Malcolm X Mosque. And the basic sermon he gave was, you don't like policing your neighborhood. I got a, uh, a tip for you guys. They don't like to be here. It's kind of dangerous here. They'd much rather be in uh, Park Avenue. It's a lot easier. I got a couple of crimes a week. Here, we got real problems. But I have a trick how we get rid of them. We get rid of them like that. No problem. He said... Let's stop killing each other in disproportionate amounts. Yeah. Let's stop committing five times more murders than our percentage of the population. Let's stop having our women call for more police because they're afraid of us. Every time I would go into a community of high crime, it could be African-American, it could be Hispanic, it could be a mixture, or it could be white. They all wanted more police. The civil rights people at the top were saying, police brutality, too many police, not enough police. The women in the housing developments were saying, Mayor, you're not giving me enough police. And I doubled and tripled those precincts. I was the first mayor that decided we don't need as many police on Park Avenue as we do in, in Harlem. I'm sorry. And it's not because I don't like black people. It's because I do like them. Yeah. I want to save them. That's another thing that drives me crazy. I did what I did to save their lives, not, not to hurt them. And I believe I saved more lives than any mayor ever. When, I, start, when I, I started with 1,900 and I ended with 400 a year. And then Bloomberg took it down to 300. Just explain to the, those who yeah, are not the murder There were two, the, the, in 1991 and 92, there were 2,400 murders and 2,200 murders and two riots. One in Crown Heights, which was a pogrom, Jewish people being singled out and beaten up. And then uh, in Washington Heights, one on behalf of a guy who was killed, who turned out to be a drug dealer who was painted as an altar boy for four days because David Dinkins wouldn't give out his criminal record. And... Washington Heights burned. So I got I got elected mayor because the city was the city was in almost in a crisis. And the year I got elected, even with the extra police that were put on, there were 1,900 murders. So I knew that I had to reduce crime, and luckily that my whole life was law enforcement, so I knew how to do it. So each year murder would go down, anywhere from 10 to 20 percent, and by the time we were finished, it went down 65 percent. So it went down, maybe more. It went down from 1,900 to 5, 10, 
490. And then Bloomberg continued our programs and improved on them and got it down to 300. It's incredible. Which is absurd. Just think of it. One year, 300 murders and more people in the city now. So proportionally, it was even more of a reduction because I took over a city with 7.9 million people and I left the city with 8.4 million. So I had 400,000 more to commit murder, except they were committing much less murders. Overall crime went down the same, 65%. Auto theft, 80%. And auto theft was a mafia crime. And I understood auto theft. I understood exactly how to stop it. I stopped it in two, two years, partially because my poor little car was broken into twice. And I loved that car. It was personal. And I had, it, was, it, right, it, was, it was personal. Not business. We talk about education, right? And, the, and all of these social ills that you addressed in your administration, you and I have talked off the microphone about education, and, and we talk about it a lot on this show, because there's a modern mythology that our Italian-American community got here and said, send everybody to college, education's the key. It's not the case. Our numbers were staggeringly bad for the first generation that ignored education. It's part of our hagiography. And you know, I had a conversation, I've had multiple conversations lately with, with people who are involved in these art discussions online of people who are listeners, is that we try, we do, we try to portray that we were gung-ho for, for education. The high national parishes were the last to start schools. Some of the Holy Rosary in Jersey City was almost 50 years old before they started school. Um, at one point of the conversation we've had, the Italians encouraged their kids to take music. I'm going to be a shoemaker. You could be a shoemaker and have a shoe store. I'm going to have a grocery store. You can make it even bigger and, and bring in dry goods and have a supermarket. And by saying, by the people often, they, we, we, they try to pass. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. My father, I don't, know if I, I, I don't know if I knew it or observed. My father used to explain this to me. My father would say that when we came here, meaning Italian-Americans, we didn't value education the way other groups did, like the Greeks, Jewish people, uh, maybe even the Irish more, the Irish, yeah. more, right? But he would particularly point out the Jewish people and and the Greek people, who right away, first generation, even though they were you know uh, selling uh, food on the street, as you know the husband was, immediately thought he and his wife thought, my kids don't have to do this. He's not going to sell on the street. He's going to go to city college. Uh, the Greek same. We had this thing, which I think we took from Italy, particularly the rural part of Italy, which is you're wealthy if you have a lot of children, because a lot of them were farmers. Yeah. I end up with five kids on my farm, six kids on my farm. I don't have to pay. I'm doing all right for myself. Yeah. I got a nice big business now, yeah. right? And I think that was part of the mentality. I think when, when they went to cities, like when they went from you know, the farms to Naples or to Rome or wherever, same thing in business. I have a shoe business. Well, what else, what else can you be? You'd be a shoemaker. Shoe, shoemaker. And maybe we can have a big shoe business. We have his own shoe business. Or the eldest son can be in the business with me, and the other sons can go start their own businesses. So my grandfathers who came here, one was a barber, but he had been educated in Naples. He had the equivalent of a high school education. He probably would have been, well, we would call it a, a, like a, a notary public, but in Italy they, they, they record all the, they're almost like semi-lawyers, because that's what his family yeah, did. That's what he would have been in, 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 in Naples. And one of his relatives was the, was the Bishop of Naples. So they came from a fairly good family, right? A middle-class family. He came here, he's totally poor. Became a, he became a barber, started a barber shop. Taught himself how to cut hair. He and his wife had seven children. Only one of them graduated from college, and it was like the, one of the youngest ones. And my mother wanted to go to college. My mother was a very, very good student. She wanted to be a teacher. But the idea of educating a woman was, oh my God, that's a waste of time. So she went and got a teacher certificate so she could teach because she desperately wanted to go to college. 
That left my mother someone who understood the value of education. So my mother got that from, I'm not going to have my children. And my father would see the comparison with other groups. And he never went to, he never finished high school. My mother finished high school and went further. Uh, but he had the same, same feeling. I don't know where he developed it, but he developed the same feeling. So he would always say to me, he'd come to my graduations or my cousins or whatever, and he'd bring, always bring the booklet home with the kids' names, throw it on the table, and he'd say, not enough Italian names there, graduating from high school, graduating from college. When I graduated from law school, he brought it home. And I knew, I knew immediately, I, had, I said, I know, I know, I know. He'd take it out. He wasn't going to say to me, congratulations on getting this award or that award. Right. He'd say, like, it's my fault. Right. Why didn't you recruit more Italians than you graduated? I don't see any Italian names here. I said, I can't put them there, Dad. And he said, it's your responsibility to put them there. I said, well, how am I going to do that? He said, you're going to make sure that when you become a big lawyer, and they want a job in your law firm, you're going to hire some Italians because that's what they do. That's what the other people do, and they're smarter than we are. And that's where they're going. They stick together. We don't stick together. We'd always go on this thing. I heard that a lot. All right. So now, fast forward, my father got sick, my father died, and I have been blessed with giving numerous commencement speeches. I first went to Providence College in 1984, and I, I would find myself, as I'm getting ready to give the commencement speech, right? you sit there, do the ceremonies, and you, you have the little booklet, and you're reading it. I must have done it four or five times without realizing it. I came home one day and I had all these names circled. They were all Italian names. Wow. And I said to myself, God Almighty, that's my father. Yes. And I, I, then I, So now I say to him, you know, and you can pray to him sort of, I say to him, Dad, you'd be much prouder now. Boy, plenty of Italian yeah. names. But I'll tell you what, there are even more Italian names because a lot of them are, you know, are named Ryan or they're named uh, McGillicuddy yeah. or, they're named, or they're named Schmidt house. or they're named yeah. Wagner. But they're half Italian. Right. And, and they may be half Italian the way my children are. Half Italian and one-eighth everything else, which makes them all Italian, because we wipe out We <laughs> wipe out the other. Don't bad. all those DNA tests show that? They just wipe out all yeah, the Yeah, that, that, that proves that. He's the expert. But he, he knows. Well, culturally, too. I mean, how many people, we, we get so letters so from people that say, I grew up See. half Irish or half something else, and the Italian takes over. So yeah. let's say, yeah. let's say. Irish pushed education, they definitely pushed it more. I think the reason the Italians didn't was in Italy, you were a shoemaker. You might be a very wealthy shoemaker, but the way the social structure was... Yeah, you were a shoemaker. Your kid will never be a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. We'll never accept them into society. And I think that that rigid classism, and me and John criticize it all the time, because when we're in Italy, in, in higher circles, we see it. Um, it's still very much alive in Italy. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they could, they could, the, the education opportunities are there, but the social ladder is you could so... Have a degree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true of America, too. So really what happened is the Irish and, the, and people who were Jewish, they sort of adopted America quicker, the yeah. idea of, of, a, of, a, of no social stigma. Because, look, in, in Ireland... There, there is no... In Ireland, everybody was a peasant because... Oh, right, yeah, right, right, of course. The nobility... Left to right. France and James that would have applied to England or France. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody right. on the same level because... But they also knew the language. And they so knew education... They knew Anglo-Saxon country. They yeah. knew how to work. They knew... Yeah. And, they had, and knowing the language. I mean, they just think... I always, I always think of how frightening would it be. There's a wonderful song about um, Isle of Hope, Isle of Dreams. It's an Irish, Irish song. It's about a little girl who's the first little girl from Ireland who comes to Ellis Island. She's only 15, I think, or 16. And the song is about how frightened she must have been and how brave she must have been to come here. 
So I think of my grandfather, my grandfather, two grandfathers, they left Italy, young men, uh, no money, no career. One was going to be a notary, and the other was going to maybe be a priest like me. Then um, the oldest brother in the family died, and they took him out of the seminary and said, you have to have, you have, to have children. Wow. <laughs> you better have children. Thank God, because I wouldn't be here. <laughs> they didn't do it. But he got a little upset about it for a while, and he left. I don't know what, a, what a, a guy trained to be a priest who comes to America who isn't a priest and speaks Italian can do. <laughs> it's amazing. They just but he figured phone. out that he could be, he, he taught himself how to be a custom tailor. So he made, he wow. made suits for, for men by hand. He would sew them. And I remember vaguely seeing him do that. Yeah, but it, I mean, even custom-made suits today, even though the custom tailors, they still use machines. Sure. It's not all by hand. He used to do it all by hand, meticulously, wow. two days, three days, four days. And that was his business. And then he developed enough money, and in 1905 he went back to Italy and he brought his two sisters over. What I can't seem to find is when he first came here. I can't get the date, whether it was 1900, 1898, 1899. We can try to help. Yeah, I should try to find that. I know what my... We're, we're pretty good about I, that. He came, over, he came over shortly before Ellis Island. Castle Garden Archives. Yeah. Go right online. We and my, have a better... I feel it's easier to search your website than Ellis Island. My grandmother, my grandmother came in... Eight, she, the earliest of my grand was 1894. Then my two grandfathers probably in between those two periods of time. And both of them couldn't, the two men couldn't speak English and they had no money. And they came to a country they didn't understand. And they didn't speak the language. So to be afraid of going to school also yeah. wouldn't be abnormal. I mean, you don't know the language, you don't know the yeah. culture. They, they don't have schools like that in Italy where yeah. poor people go to school. Yeah. Right? Only rich people went to really important schools. So I think it took a while. Probably it wasn't until the 30s or 40s, maybe, that it started to change. That you think maybe the 50s? He's the first grand person of Italian descent. The one, let's say, the first immigrant to Canada in the 1890s, could be 1880s, really. The kids who. Well, I was a grandchild. The Jimmy yeah. Durante crowd. Yeah. Jimmy Durante was born in 1895, right? So he adopted his kids, but had he had a, a natural child, they probably would have born about the 20s. So I feel the late 20s crowd, which is the Korean War crowd, they're the first generation that were three generations in this country, and they are the ones that were the yeah, pictures. That, makes exact, that would apply to my family, because my grandparents were the first ones to come here. Then they had my parents, and then me. And my parents were born, well, they were born actually, they were older. They were born in 18, 1910, 1909, 1910. But both of them had this and so did all their brothers and sisters. I mean, all my cousins went to college. So it wasn't just them, but somehow, somehow their generation developed the idea, you must go to college. And, and very quickly, girl as well as a boy. And we didn't build educational institutions. I mean, the Irish built grammar schools and high schools. Oh, I went to Irish schools. Yeah, you had Irish ones. I tell, I tell people, you know, genetically I'm all Italian, but, you know, I'm probably culturally half Irish because I love the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I love Irish music. Who taught you in high school? Where did you go to high school? Christian Brothers. Of De La Salle. No, I went to the Bishop Lachlan High School. Oh, I didn't have the Irish I had the regular Christian Brothers, oh, the right. French the, Christian Brothers. De La Salle Christian Brothers. Yeah, wonderful. And then Manhattan College. And Manhattan College. I love them. Uh, and, uh, but still, it was, it was a fair number of Italian-Americans, both in the order and students, but still predominantly Irish, and an Irish culture. The church was an Irish culture. Is the Irish cultural yeah. institution. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. I remember very well 
My grandmother would listen to Bob Grant on Saturday mornings. Oh. After Bob Dylan, he was insane. I love Bob Grant. I used to host his show every once in a while as his guest host. And my political advisor used to hate it because he was so controversial, but I loved him. He used to get in trouble. I mean, he would have loved Trump. I was just going to say, you've got a soft spot. Yeah. He was completely politically incorrect. He, he makes Trump look like gentle. <laughs> he got the Italian-American, like, you know, he, he was like a magnet because he's uh, uh, Neapolitan from Chicago, and he had that magnet toward Italian-Americans. And I remember when you were mayor, Lynn Samuels wanted to call you Mussolini on air. I can't call him that name because every Italian, I saw, oh, they're going to call me a racist, and she just, she was, she was hinting, she was beating around the bush that you were Mussolini. And I thought to myself, you're calling an Italian-American Muslim. You do that with other groups. Right. And my question is... Call a German Hitler, right? Yeah, call a German Hitler. Did you feel that there was certain... Did you feel part of New York condescended to you because you were Italian-American and they couldn't get that out of their head? Like, you're the mayor, but you're still... My mother used to say Guinea. No, I think I... call them Guinea. No matter how nice you are, they're still going to call you. Did you ever get that? Yeah, a little bit. Here's the way I would get it. I think it actually helped in some ways. Because even though there were Italian Americans that got angry at me for going after the mafia, I think I could go after them because of that, yeah. and I could say mafia. And of course, some people would accuse me of being tribal rights. Yeah, it's like it's like look, the thing happens now, right? Uh, African Americans will claim they can say things about themselves that other people can't say, and I think every group feels that way. Yeah, and there's a little truth to that. It's it almost it's almost like. I can say things about my family. Yes. But if you say things about my family, we're going to have a big fight. That's, that's very normal <laughs> to us, you know, yeah. especially family. Like, people don't understand. It, it's, become, it's become such a, almost a joke and a standard conversation, but Italian-Americans have this sense, and family, community, the same thing. This is our tribe. I can criticize my family. I can fight with them. But as soon as somebody steps over the line and does it themselves. Absolutely right. And man, I can be so angry. I can yeah. be so angry at a family member, and then somebody else does the same thing, and I go crazy. And you can also be angry, and, you, and the fight can just disappear. Just go away. I mean, like, my family, we fight and scream. I remember I used to well, have a girlfriend that wasn't Italian, and I forget where she came from, far off from this area. And she came to visit my family, and she's like, you're screaming at each other, but then you're going to sit down for dinner. And I was like, no, that's that's normal for us. Yeah. Like, that's, that's, that's how we stay together. Yeah, that's how we stay together. <laughs> we let yeah. the steam out, yeah. and then let we the move on. I remember, I remember when I was first going out on dates, because it was late for me, because I wanted to be a priest. I was going out with this very young, very, very wonderful young lady. It was about right toward the middle of end of college, and she was Methodist. And my fa- my father, my father was the more religious of the two of my family. Yeah, my father would have been okay if I married somebody who wasn't Italian. He had gotten beyond how to be Italian, not Catholic. Oh my God, mm. I'll, I'll be turned into a pagan. <laughs> so he was very afraid that I was going to marry him. But this was like a college law school boy. It wasn't. I guess at the time you would think it was, but so but I used to love to tease him. And he always knew that I would have been a priest if it wasn't for celibacy. So I got to know her minister. And then I can, one day I'm sitting there and I'm talking to my mother. So, so I went to him directly. He didn't know that I was teasing. I said, Mom, I don't know how to tell Dad this. But I met I met her, her uh, minister. Man, I, that's not a bad religion. Oh. <laughs> I said, you know, in that religion, I could be married and I could be like a priest. And if I became an Episcopalian. Even they didn't even call me priest. They called me Father Giuliani. And I said, there's a certain number of Italians that are Episcopalian, I found out. So I'm thinking about maybe converting to be Episcopalian. My father stormed in the room. He says, I never hit you when you were a kid. I never hit you when you were a kid. But I was a boxer. And I was a lot better boxer than you. 
you want to become an Episcopalian, you have to fight me for it. <laughs> Jesus, that's not the way to discuss religion. We're going to have a boxing match. For, and if you win, I stay Catholic. And if I win, I become an Episcopalian. That's like the Oh yeah, my father was my father was yeah. the more dramatic. My mother would listen to me, and I do this with my children in this capacity. And you get away with a lot of trouble if you do this. You just humor them. You know, the moral will say, "Oh, I'm going to take a year off from college and go to Europe." Now, some parents would say, "You're going to finish college and stop it, stop it." I said, "Oh, okay. We can talk about it. Can we talk about it? No, 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 no. Let's think about it a little." My mother had that capacity. My father, if he said. I take a year off from college to go to Europe. My father would say, no, you're not. You're not going to take a year. If you take a year off, you'll take two years off. You'll take three years off. You're not taking any time off. And my mother would say, no, no, no. And then she would tell my father, these kids all have stupid ideas. Just let them say it for a couple of, right. a couple of weeks, and they'll burn out. The whole thing is just going to blow over, right? Yeah, it'll and then blow over. No, it's so stupid. I'm taking notes. <laughs> 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 like The other, the other great story of my family was my, my, my grandfather, my father's father, when the Second World War happened, uh, all of his sons went off to be in the war, which theoretically was against, well, it was against Italy as well, yeah. although I think they were in, in the Pacific, but not, oh, just by accident, right? So many of his goombas would say, this is terrible, we would like to go back to Italy, and he would go crazy and say, why did you leave? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you want to go back to Italy? You got to have this here, you have that here, you got a lot more freedom. We don't have a maniac running our country, <laughs> you know. But he, he had this great love of America, and he had this wonderful love of being Italian, and my father did. My father was as patriotic as he could possibly find. You put out a flag, he would start to cry. Sometimes at Yankee games, when they did the national anthem, he'd, he'd say, isn't that beautiful, isn't that beautiful? But he still loved being Italian, and somehow it just melded together. It wasn't like being loyal to your Italian roots meant anything about, you attack our country, screw Italy. That's we're fighting for our country. My we're Americans. Like <laughs> my like my grandfather would say that. He said, we're, Amer we're not Italians anymore. We're Americans now. Now, was he Italian in his heart, in his soul, in his memory? Sure. But his allegiance, he, he made, and maybe because they made the choice to come here, right? So, unlike... Uh, us who were born here, and we take it for granted. Yeah. My grandfather had to cross an ocean yeah. to be in America. And give up a they lot. thought the family was still intact. Yeah. Italy for them was the family. Yeah. They thought the family was still intact, and the family had better opportunities. Yeah. Because it always goes back to because John and I were in Naples, and John's brother made a comment, a Neapolitan phrase, and it explains so much of this. He goes, "Francia, Spagna, basta da Germania. France or Spain? Who cares most?" The Spanish ruled Naples, or when the French eat. ruled Naples, who cares who's ruling Naples as long as we eat? Yeah. So we're not a, we're not a people that are really tied to a governmental. No, you know, no, that's against that practicality. And it's what's right with this country is that it, this country leaves room for people to. Uh, I always hate the word assimilate because uh, I like the uh, the Australian Italian community when I went over there to do some work. They kind of jumped on me for using the word assimilate, and they said we talk about integration because their community still maintains its Italian culture, still feels that this is a part of who they are, but they're functionally it. Australian. I, I have, love I have Italian friends in Australia, and they'll tell you that Italian-Americans hold on to things more. Hold, hold on to what? That we hold on to the Italianness more. We do, Americans. Yeah, because their, their argument is their first generation 
born in Australia, and they were already moved from somewhere else. And they feel after three or four generations, they'll be much less Italian than we are. We are a weird anomaly that way. I we're we're multi-generations here. But I, think we, it's but I also think that, that somehow the generation, last two generations, have gone, in my family at least, like when my grandparents came here, would not teach their children Italian, yeah. wanted them to integrate, wanted them to assimilate. My grandfather would make speeches about how you're American now. They never took them to Italy. My parents never went to Italy. However, they grew up, all of a sudden, after a while, they wanted to be Italian again. And they yeah. regretted the fact that their parents didn't teach them English. Their culture. Yeah. That's a lot they of made our me, listeners. Yeah, they, made me, they made me very uh, Italian-centered. And, and it's, a, it's a nice way to do it, too. I never, I, never had the feeling, I never had the feeling that I was better than anybody else, even though in some ways we sound like you know, we, we have better food. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we're more loving. Uh, we're family oriented, but a lot of all of those people are family oriented too. I mean, Jewish people have wonderful fam- families. Uh, we don't compare food to that. No, that's true. <laughs> we can't, we can't give them that. But when food, food, you mean there aren't there aren't a lot of great Jewish restaurants in there? <laughs> how about how about the wonderful Irish restaurant I ate in last night? We I'm can't only tell kidding. You're <laughs> <laughs> I once had a debate. That's a great question. Oh, I was going to ask Simple. I'm probably going to go there in a little while. Frescoes. Really? Yeah, yeah I love it. I love frescoes. Although I like a lot of them. I, I have a new kind of one, one that I like now. Come Prima. No, not Come Prima. It's on, it's on, a lot of people don't know it. It's on Madison Avenue between 72nd and 73rd on the east side of the street. It's um, hard to see. They have a big thing, but it's really, really nice. And all the rest of them, I mean, I love all of them. And there were a lot of different ones. And when we you have, go into Fresco's, what do you, they know you now. When you go in, what do you order? Oh, the first thing he brings out is I do pasta, and he, he knows what I like. And then it depends. Sometimes I just have meatballs. Nice. That's it. That's a great Italian meal. That's just so, give me meatballs. I can, yeah, o- yeah. I can always have veal parmesan. I test an Italian restaurant by ordering veal parmesan. Mm. Everybody has That's a test of it. That is a great and My pasta. brother's Galamad. My brother says Galamad is a good test. That's a good test, too. I also, also, you have to get pasta and see, you know, you have to get a couple of different pastas. The simpler, the better. You know what my dad does? He makes him bring out a glass of marinara sauce that he tries with the bread. When he first gets to the restaurant, he makes him bring out a cup. He says, bring me a cup of marinara sauce so I can decide what I want to eat. And he tests the This is sauce. why we I'm going to do this. Yeah. This yeah. is my next sauce. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Does it taste the wine? And yeah, it does. It really Can does. I also taste the marinara? Sometimes the waiters, these poor waiters, like, they, you know, they're like, what's wrong with this guy? Sometimes I should go and do a, a, a sauce tasting. Oh, like I five, would love to do like that. Five, put five different ones there, see which is better, or That's do a, a blind tasting. And <laughs> blind see, tasting would be see if you could tell the difference. You have a favorite sauce? Like you do, well, I like marinara sauce. But I, mean, I like out of the old school Italian-American places in the city, you know, Little Italy or Rayo's, or you have a favorite sauce? No, 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 I'm not going to get in trouble. I don't think of it. You know, why do I like Fresco the most? The food is, I think, the best. But there are 20 other restaurants where the food is the best. Just because I'm comfortable there. And they're so nice, and I know them for forever. And there's certainly no place where the food's better. But I go to Italian restaurants. Please don't get angry at me. I hope the Scottos don't get angry at me. But the food is as good. Yeah. 
but it's just the ambience and the people that are there. It's like going, look, I don't have, my mother and grandmother are gone, so I can't go home for, for, for dinner, you know, like I used to, so it's like going home for dinner. But I'll try, I mean, last night I went to a different Italian restaurant. Um, a week ago I went to another Italian restaurant. I mean, I try, try to go to all of them. It's like cigars I smoke. I, I love one particular cigar, but I smoke all of them just to see if they're getting better. That's the beauty of life. Yeah. Yeah, you got you got to enjoy multiple things. I won't go to any Italian restaurant. Yes, he really will. Yeah. We were in Buffalo one time, and he took he we had to go to this very old Italian restaurant, Italian American restaurant, chefs. chefs. That's called. Yes. And he was in heaven. I was like, "There's way too much sauce and cheese Italian on this plate." Yeah. Were you here with us, yeah. right? Yeah. Anything. And he was in heaven. Style. Lots yeah. of lots of cheese sauce on top, deep fry. I love that. I love See, that Italian American food. The true yeah. Italian American mentality. Yes. You can parm anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, alright, we've taken a lot of your time. Yes. Well, right. I enjoyed it. We'll come back. To eat, but I, wanted to do, I wanted to do something before we leave. Sure. You built your career in a decade, the 80s, the 90s. Really, it was like the Italian American explosion. And you interacted with so many prominent Italian Americans at that time that are fundamental to our story. If I could ask you to sum up in one word these famous Italian-Americans from that era, if you've interacted with them, could you do it? If I list them? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay. Right. Antonin Scalia. Very, very funny. Mario Great Cuomo. sense of humor. Mario, Mario Cuomo, a, a thinker. Frank Sinatra. Uh, bigger than life. Joe DiMaggio. Uh, one of my heroes. Luciano Pavarotti. Greatest tenor voice ever, including Caruso. Yes, he was a good friend. Now, one of my great regrets was I missed his funeral because I was campaigning for president then when I was running. Wow. And I was at his last performance at the Met, which he begged me to come to, and I turned down, had to get out of two speeches, for which I've earned a great deal of money, and he didn't show up. <laughs> I was there. I was there that day. And, and who replaced La Citra, Salvatore La Citra. That was one of the most who died a few years ago. I can't believe that. Who had a, who had who actually gave a great performance as Cavaradosi. Oh my gosh! My dad and I were there in our tuxedo. Yeah, yeah, sure. You were. I, I remember seeing you. Come I in. was sitting with Joe Volpe. Yeah. So Volpe called me about one in the afternoon. It was an eight o'clock performance, and he said he's doing it again. I said, "What do you mean he's doing it again?" He's claiming he has a cold. The man used to do this all through his career, which is one of the reasons he had that napkin. Everybody thought he had it for the sweat. He had it because he wanted you to think he had a cold, just in case he missed. Just in case he missed. He did. He did a concert performance of Otello with George Schulte at Carnegie Hall. A great, great thing because that role as Otello requires a massive tenor voice, and Pavarotti was more of a lyric tenor with a very high voice. For example, Caruso could never sing Otello. His voice wasn't big enough for Otello. He didn't think it was. He did decided to do Otello. It was out of his voice range, and he was absolutely convinced he was going to screw it up. But he, all his career, he avoided doing it. And he finally did three concert performances, great CD that exists of it, with George Schulte. But he, he realized there may be some notes he wouldn't hit the right way. So he, he, had a, he, he could sit down on a stool when he wasn't singing, and next to him were all these napkins. That was his cover. A tremendous amount of water. His voice was perfect. But he would always do he would, he'd do a very difficult part, and then he'd sit down and go. That's great. That's so Italian. He covers himself. So the, la- the last performance. So he, the, Volpe finally stopped doing this for him. When Volpe took over as general manager, he would claim, I, I, I'm not going to sing. I won't come out. I won't sing. 
and they would make a deal. He would come out only if Volpe said he was under the weather. Wow. Whether Volpe would walk out and say, you know, uh, Luciano Pavarotti uh, isn't feeling well tonight, but because he loves me so much, he didn't come out and perform. Please excuse. Da, da, da. He did this about 20 times. And he realized he didn't have a cold. <laughs> and he felt like, and people were making fun of Volpe. They were saying, how could you fall for this? Was it true that he was always nervous before a performance? It, it, the most amazing thing. I am, I am convinced, and I, I consider myself an expert on the tenor voice, because I listen to all of them, and I love opera since I was 13. I believe he had the greatest natural tenor voice that ever existed, including Caruso, to the extent that I can hear the voice with the enhanced, and Caruso probably was the second. Um, but for some reason, the man always had stage fright. Wow. Always wild. had stage fright. I mean, he, he, he would come out when he was supposedly sick, and he would sing better than you know anybody ever sang before. But he never had the, con including the last performance. Yeah. He wasn't really sick. He actually felt, I think I understood him well enough to know what he thought. He thought, they're not gonna think the voice is the same as it was when they first heard me 30 years ago. Wow. Sinatra was like that. Uh, Sinatra was like that, and Joe DiMaggio was like that. Yeah, that's Joe DiMaggio retired early because he said, I don't want people to remember me playing Figura. you know, as a 250 hitter, or two, like, like a lot of players do, yeah. right? Mickey Mantle, great player, but then all of a sudden, his last two seasons, yeah. he batted two sixty, or yeah. and he and they had it, you know, he couldn't he couldn't hit home runs anymore. Imagine wanted you to remember the guy with the you know unbelievable ability to catch balls and that great stride. He looked like a stallion and graceful. Yeah, I graceful. admire that. It's like that's, no, that's no one it's part time of us. to move on to the next phase and go out with like your head held high mm -hmm. and your your best. Yeah, you protect your I really figure. admire we that. We still have remembered that. Marilyn Monroe the same way if we saw her, you know, age right. that way. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. it's, a, it's the idea. Well, as we talk about America's mayor, what's next? Your 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 time as the, the lawyer for the president is, is coming to Well it, 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 it I, I do security work all over the world. We're in, in the middle of two projects right now, one of them in Bahrain. Uh and I, I've taken on more cases now because I've reestablished being a lawyer, and I love it. Probably it's my passion. I mean, I do, I do, I've been doing security work for 19 years. I've, since I've been mayor, I have visited at least 70 countries. Uh, I've done work, substantial amount of work, in probably 30 of them. Um, I love it. I never traveled a lot. And when I was mayor, I just stayed here every day. I, when I travel, I was always, always had plans to get back immediately. Uh, did it rarely. I think I made four foreign trips when I was mayor, all of them very, very quick. The I made one, two, three to Israel, one to Puerto Rico, and, and not, not Puerto Rico would be foreign, but to, uh, to Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico for, for uh, hurricane relief, and one to Canada, which is not a foreign trip. Yeah, really, no. Um, and I, even before that, I, I traveled a fair amount, but not a lot. I wouldn't consider myself somebody who was a world traveler. Now I consider myself probably one of the biggest world travelers. I literally, I, probably 90 countries. It's very hard for me to find a new country to go to, and I get really excited. Wow. When well, I get, make a trip to I'm going to go to Costa Rica pretty soon. Have and you that, been to Eritrea? Mm-mm. That's a trip we should take. Now that we've reestablished, mm -hmm. it's the only really Italian colony in Africa. It's like being in Italy in the 1930s. I went once, and we keep saying we're going to go back for the uh, architecture. You've got to go to yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the number one trip. Yeah. We should go to Jesualdo. Yes. Well, let me tell you, Mr. Mayor, I think you got a talent for this. I think you should consider a podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're natural. 
this group is usually screaming over each other, and we all sat here like. Oh, you're yeah, very kind. Listen, <laughs> thank you. So, thank you for being well, here. I love doing this. It was great for me. I thank you. It was like really very warm, wonderful experience. You're thank welcome you. back. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. From all of us here in New York City, thank you for listening to the Italian American Power Hour, and we'll be back with you next week. You have got the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian, if you want your life to be great. See that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian.